Genesis 46, verses 1 through 7, and verses 27 to 34. As you have just heard, reading from the New King James Version, I encourage any of our sermon audio listeners who've not read the text to do so now before listening to the rest of the message, which is titled, God's Timetable. In his book, Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington talks about a meeting that he had with a much older black man, an African-American man, who had been a slave when he was younger. And he said while he was a slave, he entered into an agreement with his master, his owner, to buy his freedom. And he entered into the agreement about two years before the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, the terms of his contract allowed that slave to work for anyone in any place that he could find work. That is, if he continued to pay his owner a certain amount of money each month until he paid off what it took to buy his freedom. Now, he heard that the former slave said he heard in Ohio he could make more money than where he was living in Virginia. And so he went there. And while working in Ohio, the order came that all the slaves in the occupied South were to be freed. Let me digress for a moment and point out to you that some people have the mistaken notion that the Emancipation Proclamation freed all the slaves. That is absolutely not true. It only freed the slaves in the occupied South, and there were plenty more in places outside the occupied South who were not free. However that may be, at that point, this man still owed his master, his former owner now, $300. Now, the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation freed all the slaves from any obligation whatsoever to their owners. But now this man... Knowing that he had made a promise in good faith, he set out on foot from Ohio. He was heading for Virginia, back to where his former owner lived. And when he finally got there, he went straight to his former owner's home, and he placed the last dollar that he owed him in his hands. Booker T. Washington wrote that the former slave told him that he knew he did not have to pay off that debt, but he felt that since he had given his word, he could not enjoy being free until he fulfilled the promise. Now, in the history of the old covenant people of God, Yahweh bound himself to them in a series of promises, specifically covenant promises. In the case of Joseph, for example, God revealed to him and promised that he would become a great ruler and leader. In the Older Testament phase of the history of God's church, God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to occupy Canaan, which was the promised land. And he promised to bless them, and to multiply them, and to bless the whole world through them. But now something has changed, both in terms of this immediate text, but of course in the long-range plan. Because, as we know from what Scripture clearly teaches, God's plan was the whole world would be blessed through the spiritual descendants of Abraham. This never was an ethnic, blood-related, biological promise. It was always related to the people who believe in the message of the kingdom, regardless of who they are. That's the only way the whole world could be blessed, obviously, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Paul has taught us very clearly... We are the sons of Abraham who are sons and connected by faith in union with Christ. But now, 
in terms of the immediate text, the covenant people here are actually leaving the promised land to go to Egypt. And they're doing that with the encouragement of the very God who told them to occupy that land in the first place. Now, let me just mention here, I'm going to mention a third in a moment, but there are two upfront reasons right here that we can mention as to why that's happening. First, they left for physical reasons. We know that there's a famine. They're going to starve to death unless they get out of there and go to Egypt. But then secondly, and this is a little bit below the surface, we know it from other texts surrounding this and then on into other places like the book of Exodus and even Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they had to get away from the evil influences of the Canaanite people who occupied that land. You know, sometimes I think we forget when we when we read the expansion of God's law as summarized for us in what we call the Ten Commandments, the application of that law, its expansion is given to us in places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And we can read, or even in Exodus, we read in these places where God tells his people, you shall not do certain things. And some of those are just downright bizarre that he tells them. And you think, well, why would anybody ever think about doing something like that to be told not to do it? Well, because the people that they were enculturated by, the the place where they went and all the surrounding culture were the worst kind of pagans you can imagine in terms of particularly sexual decadence. And so God needed to get them out of there. And he told them to go to Egypt. So it's the Lord, Yahweh, who wants them to leave. Now, we have seen how God worked in the circumstances of Joseph's life to accomplish his sovereign purpose. God's providential hand is at work in all things that happen in this world, my friends. God has a plan that is far beyond our full comprehension or understanding. And let me just say, and I'll explain this further, that is why we seldom read about God commanding his people to understand his commandments. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In 1 John 2, 3 to 4, we read, Now by this we know him, that is, we who follow Jesus, this is how we know him if we, what does it say? If we understand his commandments? No, it says if we keep, if we obey his commandments. Verse 4, he who says I know him and does not, what, understand? No, who does not keep his commandments is a liar, And the truth is not in him. And then our Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 19, verse 17, speaking to the rich young ruler, says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if I, excuse me, but if you want to enter into life abundantly, then you need to understand the commandments. No, that's not what he says. He says, But if you want to enter into life, keep, obey the commandments. Jesus never calls his disciples to understand his commandments. His first and foremost requirement is that we keep them, that we obey them. Now, let me quickly add, because I'm sure somebody's thinking about this, at least I hope you are, that doesn't mean that we don't need to learn and study and comprehend God's laws in another sense. But the point is, God is not concerned that his plan, his purpose, his overall dealing with his kingdom fit into our ideas about how we think things ought to be. We need to remember, some of us more frequently than others perhaps, that he is God and we are not. He makes the rules. He writes the book. 
We are required to trust and obey. And here we are in Genesis 46 with a command of God to his people. And upon our first reading, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, why would God God call Abraham so many years earlier to leave his family and the surroundings of his home and his business and journey to this place he'd never been before, Canaan, and promise him all of the land and an innumerable offspring. And then for three generations, Abraham, his descendants Isaac, and now Jacob have lived and some died there, but now they are moving to Egypt. And they're doing it because God, because God wants them to. But why? Now, I mentioned two reasons a moment ago. But I think at bottom, there is another reason. There is a more foundational reason. And this too figures into the whole thing about us not really fully comprehending God's plan in terms of how we might think about doing things. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 15 when God is speaking to Abraham, something that I'm sure that at the time he didn't really comprehend. In Genesis 15, 12 to 16, we read about God coming to him in a dream and a vision. And he says to Abraham, verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them, notice, 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with a great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not, right, not yet complete. So God told Abraham over a hundred years before Jacob and Joseph were even born that the people of God are going to leave the promised land and then after four centuries of bondage, they're going to return. Now to that point, we know that God led the people of Israel out of Canaan for two reasons, as I mentioned a moment ago, the famine, the harmful cultural influence. But now we see these things in retrospect are a blessing of the Lord. He's blessing them by delivering them from those things that are harmful physically and spiritually. But then the, the main second reason, if I can call it that, that they're going into Egypt for the purpose of God's judgment as well. God is going to use these 400 years of sojourn in Egypt as a means to punish the Egyptians because they're going to turn against the, and persecute the family of God. As they said last week, and as we have already learned from the book of Exodus, there will arise a generation who knew not Joseph, and it will not go well for God's Old Testament church. So Jacob and his family begin their long journey in Egypt, not an easy journey, I'm sure, for a much older man. But can you imagine how eager he must have been to finally lay eyes on his beloved son Joseph, thought to be long dead? But look again at verse 1, at what happens. He takes his journey with everything he has, but notice he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God, the God of his father Isaac. So just before he crosses the southern border of the promised land into Egypt, he stops. However eager and anticipatory he may have been to see Joseph, he stops here. And he offers a sacrifice to Yahweh the God of his fathers. Now, he does that as a testimony to his faith in the, the covenant that God made with him. And the astounding thing about this covenant is that Jacob 
actually left the promised land and he still has this connection, this relationship to the God that gave him the land. Now that may not seem like such a big ticket deal to you, but I can tell you that to people of the ancient world, this was unimaginable because for them, the gods they worshipped and knew were territorial gods. The gods were tied to the land. If you left the land or if your land was conquered, you left the God or your God was conquered. But not so with Yahweh. The covenant that he makes with his people is far stronger than that. Or I, I guess we could say, as we know from what Jesus taught and what the full whole orb message of the Bible is, God's promise and his covenant is territorial too. But his territory is the entire world. Not just some stretch of land somewhere. Even though the land disappears, even though the people be enslaved, he is still their God and the Lord of all. And so we see in verse 3 that he reassures Jacob that he will give him strength for the journey. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. So in verses 3 and 4, we read of three promises that God made. And I'd like for us to think, of, think about each of the three in the remaining time we have. First of all, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt. Now that means that the people of God, that is the church, are not going to be absorbed into the Egyptian nation and lose their distinctive identity. Yahweh will see to it that his promises will be fulfilled. The seed promise is going to come true. Yahweh is going to have an innumerable godly seed in Christ throughout the earth. And the fulfillment of that promise begins while the church is in Egypt. Now that promise is still in force today, my friends. It is the will of God that wherever the church is, whether it's Conestee or Abbeville, South Carolina, or Greenville, or Columbia, or Charleston, and anywhere in between, Boston, New York City, Paris, Rome, Tokyo, Calcutta, he wants to make his people a great nation to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the command he gave to Adam and Eve. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 28, he blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So wherever God's people go, he wants them to flourish, to prosper, and have dominion in his name according to his law. But then secondly, there's the promise that I will go down with you to Egypt. That is the reason why the people will not lose their identity. That is why the covenant will not be destroyed. Yahweh himself is going to be with his people there. Now let me just say, as a sidebar here, if I can call it that, the evangelical and so-called Bible-believing churches today, we are not doing so well in this category. Not because God has abandoned us. No, God has his remnant people in this time. But... We have seen that churches that claim to believe the infallible authority and truth of Scripture have been largely captured by the Egyptian culture of our time, or the Canaanite culture, or even worse. Drag queen story hours taking place in churches. Churches bowing the knee to Baal and shutting their doors at the command of government officials. Who would have ever thought we would see such a thing? But, as I said, God has preserved a remnant within his failing church, a remnant that will continue to flourish 
until it is as a vast and innumerable people. God himself is going to be with us, his people, as he was with them. He will continue to be the God of his people and their children, just as he promised Abraham in chapter 17, verse 7 of Genesis, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. By the way, that's one reason we baptize covenant children, because of this promise and others like it in that passage. He will be their shield, their provider, their preserver, their deliverer. What a marvelous promise this is to him and to us, his spiritual descendants. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the close of the age, the end of the age. So it doesn't matter where we live, what condition our life is in. He is there for us and with us wherever we go. And that is his promise to us, his church. But then... Thirdly and finally, there is here the promise of life in this world and the world to come. God tells him that he's going to die in Egypt, see. And the meaning of these words, now, in in the New King James says, Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. I think in the ESV it says he will close your eyes. That's symbolic of saying that in Egypt, Jacob will die a peaceful death, And his beloved son Joseph will be by his side to close his eyes when he breathed his last breath. See, one thing a mature believer comes to know about God is that his timing is not yours or my timing. And the schedule that he follows for the fulfillment of his promises may or may not fit yours or my schedule. But we can be assured that if God promises something, he will bring it to pass. Do you understand? Why we can place all of our hope and trust in his promises to us. It is because it is a covenant promise. God's promises are trustworthy because they are covenant promises. Think of it this way. You know, if a patient has a doctor's appointment and they fail to keep that appointment, well, the doctor is under no obligation to leave his other patients and go get on the phone and call that patient by the phone and say, Hey, where are you? Why why didn't you show up for your appointment? No, he simply goes on to the next patient and he maybe has his secretary make a note of the fact that that particular patient failed to keep the appointment. And maybe that patient might have a harder time getting in to see the doctor next time. That's because he broke an informal agreement with the doctor. But God doesn't operate that way. God's way is the way of covenant. It's the way that says, as in Isaiah 49, 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you, meaning his church. God's connection to his church is more like the connection of a parent to a child. You know, if your son or daughter, if you have children at home or when you did, if they don't come home for supper one afternoon or evening, Well, unlike that doctor, your obligation is not canceled. It's the parent's duty to find out where their child is and to make sure they're taken care of and okay. But God tells us that even if a parent would forget a child, he will not forget his children. Even though Jacob and the house of Israel are going to be in Egypt, God will bring them back to the promised land. Now, you know, 400 years, four centuries, that's a long time. So long that most of us would despair that God had forgotten his promises. I mean, don't we tend to put more faith in our own timetables 
and our expectations than we do in His Word and His plan. But Scripture teaches that even though we forget, even though we break our word, God is always faithful. And His promises are sure and forever. You know, I was reading recently about a group of botanists. You know, for those of you who don't know, the scientists who examine plant life. They were on a mountain range somewhere in Europe exploring new species of plants and flowers in particular. As they made their way across an area, they were looking at a variety of plants, and as they scanned that area with their binoculars, they spotted a flower of such rare beauty that they decided this was something that they must have at all costs. The only problem was that flower was at the bottom of a deep ravine with high cliffs on both sides. Somebody had to be lowered down into that ravine to get that flower. And the only way they could do that was a very thick rope. Now, it seemed to me, or excuse me, it seems that following them the whole time they were doing this exploring, or much of the time, was a young village boy. A boy from the nearby area. And so they knew he was there and maybe had some interaction with him. But they went to him and they approached him and they said, you know, we will give you money if you would agree to be the one lowered down into that ravine to get the flower. Well, the boy, for his part, he kind of peered over the edge of that ravine. And then he looked back at this um, botanist, the lead, uh, the lead explorer. And he took off running. He said, I'll be back in just a minute. And not long thereafter, he returned with an old gray-headed man following him. And the young boy walked up to that head explorer and he said this. He said, I'll go over that cliff and get that flower for you. As long as you let this man hold the rope. He's my father. That boy had a lot of faith in his father, didn't he? And so I leave you with this question. Do we have that kind of faith? in our Heavenly Father today. Let us pray.